Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into retirement income. Today, we're talking with Martin Bailey about how to fix America's retirement system. Martin is the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and he just wrote a book, The Retirement Challenge, What's Wrong with America's System and a Sensible Way to Fix It. I think we can all agree the retirement system is facing some challenges. So let's learn from Martin how we can face those challenges head on. This is Retirement Revealed, where Jeremy Kyle and his guests guide you towards making smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, yes, I mean, we used to have a system which was based on pensions where uh, most people either had pensions or we were trying to change the system in a way that more people had pensions. But uh, that's really changed. And now uh, American families really have to manage their own retirement. And that's a big reason we wrote this book, because I think people need help doing that. They are a lot of them. Some of them are OK. Uh, some of them are, feel like they're sinking. But a lot of people are very uh, nervous about uh, do they have enough money? Are they going to be able to manage uh, as they get older? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you write in the book that the system is outdated, as in it needs some new things in there. But it seems like a lot of the economists uh, want the solution to be let's bring back the pensions. So that's a interesting kind of juxtaposition. How how do you say it's outdated? And then also, I believe I'm inferring that having more pensions actually might be part of the solution. Well, there certainly are economists that think that's the right answer. And, you know, I can see why. It, it, in some ways, uh, having a pension is, is a wonderful thing. And, and the people that I know, there are quite a few people, obviously, in Washington that, that have pensions because the federal government still has pensions and uh, some of the other organizations in Washington have pensions. But these days, it just is not going to happen. We are not going to have uh, a big rise in the, in the coverage of pensions, certainly among private sector workers. And even the federal government is scaling back its pensions to some degree. And I think uh, state and local employers are also doing that. So I just think it's unrealistic to think that we are going to go back to the old days of pensions or effectively have more pensions. I will say that uh, one thing we do strongly support is putting Social Security on a better footing. So Social Security is a pension. If you've worked a, a number of years, you, uh, you do get uh, money uh, every month uh, until you die. So uh, we all have that, or almost all of us have that. Uh, so there is that basic guarantee. But the idea that that's going to get a lot more generous, I think, is also realistic. So in our current political environment, whatever you may feel about the desirability of pensions or about making Social Security a lot more generous, uh, we really think that's just not realistic. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I talked to clients, people who have uh, are retiring, they're investing, and sometimes they say, oh, I hate annuities. And I ask them some extra questions and they say, but I love my Social Security and I love my pension, which is just really funny because Social Security is a pension. Uh, pensions are annuities. 
So they love the annuities that are basically uh, somewhat given to them. I mean, not quite, but they're, they love the annuities they're forced into. Uh, so I appreciate you kind of mentioning how Social Security works like a pension. And of course, uh, I think you might agree that pensions are annuities or at least work like annuities. Uh, I'm going to get back to some of that, but you've mentioned a few words already. Economist, political, Washington. You've got a lot of connections there. Tell me more about that and more about yourself. Well, um, I've been an economist in Washington since uh, uh, 1979, so a long time. I spent part of that period in the 1990s uh, as a member of the Clinton administration. I joined the Council of Economic Advisors, which is a group, a small group, a very small agency, but a very important one uh, that really has quite direct contact with the President of the United States to give advice about economic policy. It was set up uh, after World War II as a, a sort of group of independent economists to give advice to both the president and other members of the administration. So I joined in, in uh, 1994, uh, uh, and I was there for two years as a member of the council. Um, and we had a lot of uh, interesting times. Um, president Clinton um, it was very interested in economic issues, and so we were able to have a lot of meetings in the Oval Office, and we also were part of the uh, so-called NEC, the National Economic Council, talking about uh, economic policy. And then I left. It's quite normal for economists to have a two-year stint, so I had a two-year stint there. Uh, and then I uh, left and uh, joined uh, McKinsey & Company, the big consulting firm. I had been an academic prior to that. So I was there for, I think, about three years and then was asked to come back to the administration as the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the last two years of the Clinton administration. So uh, Laura Tyson had been the chairman when I was there. Joe Stiglitz, a well-known economist, succeeded her. And then Janet Yellen, who uh, has had a very distinguished career, both at the Federal Reserve and now she's secretary of the Treasury. So she followed Joe Stiglitz. And then I followed her as chairman of the council. And I have to say, those were pretty good times economically. The economy did very well in the 1990s. We had low inflation. We had strong growth. Wages were going up. Uh, incomes were rising. So that was uh, a good period. I don't know how much credit uh, we can claim for it, but uh, uh, it certainly was uh, an excellent period for the economy. Yeah, I like how you uh, say, I don't know how much credit uh, we can take for that because it seems when we talk to investors, retirees, uh, they like to add a lot of blame to the politicians or to economists and things like that. And uh, I've got a good feeling a lot of it is just luck or a coincidence of, well, Bush did this or Clinton did that or Obama or Trump. And, you know, the U.S. economy especially is is so large. One person or a few people I don't think can super materially change it compared to the hundreds of millions of Americans that are making the economy run. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I appreciate you mentioned kind of the, I guess, political connections. I Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there, I don't know if it used to be called this, or at least there's a study of a field called political economy. And I do appreciate uh, that phrase. You don't hear it too often, because if you really think about it, when most people are saying, uh, here's what's wrong with the economy, all they're doing is talking political stuff. <laughs> they're 
they're not talking like supply and demand and and surpluses and deficits. They're they're talking political kind of stuff. So the the idea of political economy, I think, is uh, certainly worth exploring. Of of what what are those connections and uh, what can the politics do to the economy and um, and just or what they can't do because a lot of times I think uh, they can't necessarily do that much. Well, uh, well, let me say a couple of things. One is that um, I don't think you should dismiss altogether the role of policy. I think uh, there were a lot of uh, good things that were done during the um, Clinton administration, and we did end up with a balanced budget. Um, I mm-hmm. think that was helpful. I haven't uh, seen that for a while. <laughs> and I uh, haven't seen that for a while. And uh, I think Clinton also uh, supported the monetary policy, Alan Greenspan, um, I, I got to know quite well at that time. Um, and so I think there were some things that were done right that helped uh, the economy. But as you say, there was um, some fortune in it in that uh, we got a very strong burst of technological change, uh, which helped boost uh, productivity and economic growth. Uh, and I think we, we certainly supported that. Um, but it did come primarily from the private sector. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that my co-author on this book, Benjamin Harris, Ben Harris, and uh, he has been, um, he was in the, the Obama administration and was uh, the principal economic guru helping uh, Joe Biden when Joe Biden was the, the vice president. And uh, he then rejoined when uh, Joe Biden became president uh, he rejoined the administration this time in the Treasury, and he's been an assistant secretary for policy in the Treasury, uh, really helping uh, Janet Yellen as they faced a number of quite substantial economic challenges. Uh, he's now left the uh, administration, so he's helping to promote this book. And uh, he really was the retirement expert that uh, I wanted to work with as we worked on this project, uh, which we did initially as a big project through Brookings and uh, the Kellogg School at Northwestern. And uh, then we wrote the the book together. But uh, he certainly has very good uh, connections uh, on Capitol Hill and uh, in this administration. And and you're right, political economy is important. Uh, We like to you know, focus on what we think is uh, the sort of objective reality of what economics says. But you can't get away from the politics. And, uh, you know, one of our recommendations is that we absolutely need to put Social Security on a stronger footing. And that's really a political uh, decision. Yeah. And uh, in your book, you gave us a bit of hope. And then also to referencing kind of the 90s and Clinton uh, era there, you gave us some hope that both political parties both want a stable retirement system. So where do you think Republicans and Democrats can agree when it comes to fixing America's retirement system? Well, uh, certainly our politics at the moment is is very divided and, and with so much energy being put into things like dealing with the debt limit, which is unfortunate that we're having to you know spend time really on that. That should be done routinely. But I think if we can get past that kind of divisiveness, I know there are many Republicans that hear from their constituents about the need to uh, help them out with retirement. So with, I think helping people to get access to 401k plans. Now, a 401k plan, as I think most of your uh, listeners know, is uh, 
uh, one of the ways that people save for retirement in the private sector. Um, there are other very similar plans, 403B plans and so on, that we don't have to go through that. But these are basically uh, ways in which you can contribute to a retirement saving through your employment, and you get a tax break for doing that. So that's one of the biggest things that we have to help people accumulate money for retirement. And at the moment, only about a half of workers have access to 401k plans or similar plans. And so we need to expand that. We need to give encouragement to uh, employers to uh, offer that. We need to make those available to people who are perhaps not actually employees or not uh, in a stable employment relationship so that they can also contribute to a retirement plan. And some of that was done through uh, the so-called SECURE Act or SECURE 2.0, and that uh, did provide some help to people saving for retirement, uh, but probably didn't do enough. And so I would like to see, and I think we can get Americans of both political parties on board with improving access to those retirement plans. There are now six states and uh, a city, uh, I think it's Seattle, uh, that actually offer similar plans. They're not obviously 401B plans, but they are very similar to those so that people who don't have a retirement plan through their employer can actually sign up for one uh, that's then run by uh, the state government or the, the city government. That's not ideal, but we think that's, uh, that's an improvement. Uh, so uh, helping more people get access is, 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 a big, is a big deal. And I think both parties can uh, agree on that. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because the people that talk about the money in the 401ks, they already have the money, they already have the access. And I think uh, just personally speaking, you can kind of forget about the other folks that don't have the access, which uh, like the, the stats don't lie. Half of Americans don't have access to some sort of retirement savings plan. You could argue maybe the Roth or IRA, but sure, it sure is easier to do it through a payroll deduction. I've always yeah. thought when it comes to programs and just even in your own personal life, make the best use of what already exists before you think of something new. I'm, I'm curious your thought. Uh, I wasn't planning on asking this, but I've got uh, just your thought. What's your thought about kind of opening up access to that thrift savings plan? There's already a 401k with a super cheap administration uh, cost uh, out there that the federal government, I think, could easily, with a policy change, uh, just allow uh, everyone or maybe just the people without access to uh, to go into it. Well, we do in the book actually support that. Um, oh, all right, great. <laughs> so uh, we're on the same page as you are, and uh, I think that would be a, a very big deal. As you say, people can open their own IRA accounts. And so they're not prevented from saving for retirement or even getting some of the tax advantages, even if their employer doesn't do it. But I think that the workers that uh, don't have 401ks, it, it, it's, you know, there's a barrier to doing it and it's, it's a little bit difficult to do and, and they don't always understand the provisions and so on. So uh, opening up the thrift uh, retirement plan uh, would be, I think, uh, a wonderful thing to do, and a lot of people would participate in that. Now, uh, the the pushback that you get is that people say, well, we don't want the government 
owning uh, private companies. We want to make sure that our private sector remains private and not under the influence of, uh, of government. So we don't want uh, government administrators voting shares or really having substantial ownership in uh, private companies. But I think it's possible. I mean, the TSP is uh, managed separate from the government, and we could, if we opened it up, uh, we could allow that to be managed by um, private investment companies, the ones that that, that already uh, are doing that, the people like TIA, and I don't want to single out uh, any particular company, but there are a number of uh, very reputable uh, companies that uh, run uh, 401k plans. So they could run the one for the for the federal government that was open to everybody. And so, you know, it would be really kept at a distance from any kind of uh, policy uh, interference. Um, but that has been, I think, the, the obstacle that people look at opening up TSP and they say, well, we don't want the government to be too involved with the private sector. But I think we could overcome that problem. Yeah, to me, that sounds like an excuse not to get something done. But I think, yeah. uh, like yeah. you said, you can over overcome it. You mentioned uh, Social Security a few times. How would you go about fixing Social Security? Well, uh, there's a lot written on that. And so we don't make it a major emphasis of our book, except to say that it does need to be done. But since you asked me the question, I'll say, look, there are some people that, that we think don't get enough. I mean, there are some widows whose uh, maybe whose husbands didn't make much money when they were alive. Uh, I say widows, obviously, sometimes they're widowers, but uh, women uh, uh, do, on average, live a little bit longer than men. Um, so there are more widows than widowers and that, that really don't have much on so, uh, from Social Security and uh, don't have much else to support them. So we think uh, for, for them, maybe there could be some small increases in, in benefits. We could also think there should be some, maybe some trimming of benefits at the upper end. So there are some people who are quite wealthy, who are receiving uh, really quite generous uh, benefits. Maybe both husband and wife worked, um, so they may be uh, collecting ninety or $100,000 a year from Social Security. And they've paid in. Uh, you know, they, it's, there's nothing that's a scam about that. They, they deserve to get the money. But perhaps if we wanted to save a little bit, we could scale back those benefits just, just a bit. We don't want to scale them back too much because people have been paying in their entire lives and they have a, a right to get a decent benefit out of it. So uh, one thing that could be done is some adjustment on the benefits, maybe trimming them a little bit at the top end, maybe being a little bit more generous on the bottom end for people who've you know, don't have much else to live on, but uh, who's uh, they or their spouse uh, worked for many years and, and deserve to get a bit more. And then after that, it really comes to the question of, are you willing to raise taxes a little bit? And uh, I am, I think we would need to do that. It wouldn't have to be a very substantial increase, either in the, the so-called FICA tax rate, the uh, the amount that you pay as a payroll deduction from your salary, or to increase the the, the top end. So at the moment, uh, FICA taxes are only paid on the first, uh, I forget how much it is, hundred and some thousand, and then after that. So you could raise that limit a bit, or you could increase the tax rate a little bit, the amount paid by employers, 
or the amount paid by workers or both, it wouldn't have to be a big change uh, to put Social Security on a, a, a stronger footing. The, the people make a big deal about Social Security is going to go broke. And uh, yes, the, the trust fund is going to run out. But the Social Security problem is not the most serious one that we face uh, together. Actually, the Medicare problem is, I think, a bit more difficult than Social Security. So modest adjustments on the provisions, the tax rate and on uh, the benefit side would uh, solve the Social Security problem. Now, remember, we did this back in the 1980s. The so-called Greenspan Commission uh, came in and made some adjustments, and they did adjust taxes. They also adjusted the age of retirement. Um, you could still collect benefits at 62, but the time where you receive full benefits got moved up to around 67 now. So we could do that. I'm not so enthusiastic about that because um, people who've been, you know, carrying boxes for 30 years or, uh, you know, working at Walmart for 30 years, we don't want to force them to have to retire at, at 70. They need to be able to retire in a reasonable way Hopefully not 62, but certainly, you know, maybe 65 or so. Uh, so I'm, I'm not supporting raising the retirement age, although that may be one of the things that's done if we do get around to solving the Social Security problem. Yeah, I think the easiest solution is just to raise the retirement age. And it's always been the logical solution to me until I've just been reading a lot of articles recently where I'm uh, kind of trying to find a different perspective that I've had. And the, the most convincing perspective I've seen of why not to raise the retirement age is that difference between the top 10% in income and the bottom 10% of income, the average life expectancy difference there is you 12 it. years. And so it. uh, it's simple for me, a financial advisor in good health to say, oh, raise the retirement age. It's just a logical thing if you compare it to the 1930s, uh, but kind of the dispersion of who that's uh, effects is uh, just going more towards uh, the people that need it uh, need it the most. Well, you put your finger on it, and so you you obviously uh, uh, know what you're talking about here, <laughs> and uh, you're absolutely right. So at the moment, Social Security, in a way, is a little is unfair to people at the bottom end. Obviously, they get smaller benefits, but they also don't get benefits for as many years. They tend to die much younger than uh, people, uh, upper income uh, folks. So that's another reason why I'm against uh, really raising the retirement age. In a way, you say it's logical, we're living longer, uh, we're healthier longer, but that's not true of everybody and it's particularly not true of uh, lower income individuals. It's Jeremy Kyle here and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal Podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our 5-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com, use the number or spell it out, you'll get there either way. 5stepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening and now for the rest of the show. Well, one um, sentence I found interesting, uh, well, you said in your book, you mentioned that there's a solution that Americans need to trade part of their 401k for insurance products. 
which I think is just uh, a way to say annuities. Uh, what types of annuities make the most sense in retirement? Well, a, a standard annuity, um, which you buy, you can, you know, on installment before you retire, or you can buy it when you retire by allocating part of your retirement portfolio uh, to buying an annuity. And a standard annuity will start to pay out and will pay you regular payments, maybe monthly, maybe quarterly, depends on the, on the company issuing the annuity. And so you get essentially a pension. So you, uh, we mentioned this earlier that people love pensions, but for some reason they don't like to buy annuities. Why is that? Well, when it's a pension, it feels like, oh, that's someone else giving me that. So that's great. And Social Security is something that I get from uh, a government program that I've paid into. So that's great, too. If it's an annuity, well, you have to give up control over some of the money that you've accumulated in your retirement account. And people don't like doing that. They want to be able to control that money. And I understand why. People are often a little uh, optimistic about how good they are at retirement uh, investing. So they think they can invest well and, uh, you know, make choices. And I like this company or I like that company. And sometimes they make bad choices there, uh, and they, but they don't like to give up that choice. And so if you buy an annuity, you've given up the option of making those investment decisions yourself. All I would say there is that uh, ordinary people, and I include myself in this, I'm a PhD economist, but that doesn't make me a great investor, unfortunately. <laughs> And so uh, giving up that uh, ability to choose this company or that company, or maybe pull your money out of the stock market when you think it's going to uh, fall, those choices probably aren't so great. It's very easy to make the wrong choices. I've made a few wrong choices myself. So I would say probably uh, that's not a good reason to, uh, it, it, it's not a reason to not buy an, an annuity. Uh, the other reason people are reluctant to buy annuities is that interest rates have been very low. So the amount that you get, the payout from an annuity, those have been uh, rather depressed and uh, the, the payment levels have been sort of coming down or com came down as interest rates came down. Now, just lately, of course, interest rates have gone back up again. And so that does make, uh, at least for now, makes annuities look a little bit better relative to investing in the, in the stock market. But also keep in mind that by investing in annuity, you take away the risk of the stock market going up and down. And we've seen that uh, in the last uh, year or two, that the stock market can go up and down. And if you're relying on your investments to live on, uh, that can just be uh, very scary. So buying a, a regular annuity is something that uh, I think uh, many people should should consider. I think that uh, we we need to encourage financial advisors to be more uh, positive about annuities. I think another reason uh, people don't buy annuities is financial advisors they want to keep the money in the investment account because they get paid based on how much money is in the investment account. So they often don't tell people, "Oh, buy an annuity," or they don't talk about the advantages of of uh, buying an annuity. So that's one uh, problem we have. In the book, we also talk about something called deferred annuities. And uh, when we talk about that, sometimes people roll their eyes. This is something that economists really think are a great idea. 
but it's something that's quite difficult to uh, convince either financial advisors or retirees to think about. So a, a deferred annuity is really a, pretty much an insurance policy. So you pay a certain amount of money um, when you retire, whether it's 65, 70, whenever you retire. Uh, so you buy this deferred annuity, but it, you don't get anything back for a number of years. Perhaps uh, you don't get anything back until you're 80 or 85 years old. So what you're buying is an insurance policy that pays out if you live a long time. And uh, that actually is quite hard to persuade people to do that. People say, well, I'm not going to live that long or, uh, you know, I'll worry about that when it happens. But uh, we think if, if it were possible to persuade companies to uh, start writing these deferred annuity policies and retirees to buy some of these uh, deferred annuities policies, even better to have companies uh, offer deferred both annuities and deferred annuities as part of their you know retirement package that they offer to their employees we could that could actually be something that would be quite helpful because that's where retirement poverty actually occurs people have enough money and they uh, they manage just fine uh, but then they get to be uh, 80 or 85 years old and they run out of money so that's a moment where you want to make sure that you're well provided because at that age you don't you know you can't go out in the labor market and get a job at 85 that's not really feasible um so you want to make sure you're well provided for uh in very old age yeah there's so much uh great wisdom you share with there i'm thinking right now uh how great the opening up the thrift savings plan tsp would be to americans yeah. because yeah. they get access to it i know for a fact that it's very easy to turn part or all of your thrift savings plan TSP into an annuity, into a lifetime income on there. Uh, You call them regular annuities. I like to call it a payout annuity because the focus is really on getting the highest payout over your lifetime. And just to think through of that regular annuity or deferred income annuity, uh, two of the biggest worries people have going into retirement is I will outlive my money or I will kind of run out of money. uh, Exactly. Two different ways to it's it's slightly different, but that deferred income annuity. Uh, if you live a long life uh, and you're worried about outliving your money, well, that comes in to help you out. And that regular annuity, it's easy to see. I gave up my control of this money. Uh, what's less easy to see, uh, but is very much there, is when you have more of an annuity, more of an income coming in. It takes the pressure off the remaining parts of your investments. And your worst case scenario, if you're worried about, I'm going to run out of money, what if my accounts go to zero? Well, if you have more annuities or more some sort of payout, your worst case scenario, you can probably live with. If you don't have those annuities or income payouts, whatever it is, wherever it's coming from, your worst case scenario might be a really bad case uh, scenario. So it it can uh, kind of help uh, in in a lot of different ways. Well, it's a pleasure being interviewed by you because you're obviously very knowledgeable about uh, this subject and uh, you're, you're giving a, quite a bit of wisdom on this subject uh, yourself. But that's right. And so an annuity plus a Social Security payment or um, uh, having a deferred annuity uh, when, you, when you get to, to very old age, those things, I think, can be uh, important tools. Uh, I'll mention one more thing, though, that that uh, is important for retirees. Uh, a surprising uh, number of retirees 
these are these are not the poorest ones. So these are people who maybe accumulated half a million dollars or a million dollars, perhaps, in a retirement portfolio, maybe more, and they get to retire, and uh, they don't spend that money. Uh, they don't. Uh, obviously, if it's in a has been in a four hundred one k, then there's a compulsory withdrawal. I think now starts at seventy two, but. Uh, a lot of people only draw out the minimum or they don't draw out uh, their savings in retirement. And if uh, we don't know exactly why uh, that's the case, there hasn't been uh, research that I know of that will tell us definitively what the answer is. But it looks as if people are not spending that money because they're worried about the need uh, for a nursing home or, or in-home care, intensive care as they get older. So people see that, the, you know, it's very easy to become frail as you get older and uh, you can't climb stairs, you can't uh, do things that you used to be able to do. And so you need someone to help look after you or in the in a particular case, you may need to go into a, a nursing home or something for uh, dementia care if people get uh, uh, suffer from Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. So People are very worried about that. They don't want to be a burden on their children. They don't want to be a burden on their spouse. And so they hold on to that money, which could provide them with a much more comfortable retirement. And they sort of hoard that money out of concern that they uh, might end up needing to go into a nursing home or get uh, very intensive uh, care. So that's another issue we talk about. It's a very tough issue. There is no easy answer to this. And, uh, you know, for, for, for many people, the backstop has been to go into a uh, Medicaid nursing home. But there is a concern that Medicaid is actually going to be cutting the, back on availability of those nursing homes. So that's uh, even another reason why people are, uh, are concerned about that. So we think uh, one of the things that needs to be done is to try to um, revive um, insurance market so that people can actually buy an insurance policy, which will uh, uh, pay off uh, the cost of a nursing home or at least pay off a substantial fraction of the cost of a nursing home or in-home care to have someone come to your home and help you. Uh, because that's, I think, is the other big concern about uh, retirement. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up with uh, the reason a lot of people might be holding on to uh, their money. It's the thought that what if I need it later on? Two thoughts of what if I need it later on because things change and I need more income. Well, you mentioned the deferred income annuity. Or what if I need it later on because I have a, a long-term care health situation? Well, there's the long-term care insurance. It's funny that some people think that insurance is kind of a, a burden, uh, but the insurance products, the deferred income annuity, the long-term care insurance, uh, really it's a uh, it's a, a freedom maximizer. If you've got the long-term care insurance, you should be able to have less worry about the need for coming up the money yourself. If you've got the deferred income annuity or enough uh, payout annuities, some manner of those, you should uh, have less worry of what if I live a long life and don't have enough. And that should give you more freedom, more comfort to enjoy some of your money now to spend some of your money now. And I think that is uh, one of the many perplexing things that economists uh, can think about with retirees is why aren't they spending uh, this money? There's a certain subset that isn't spending it. 
I'm nerding out a bit on my uh, economics with you, Martin. I appreciate that. Uh, and you might like some of these terms I'm about to use, but I think economists uh, look at, well, aren't humans pleasure maximizers? Shouldn't they just be taking their money to maximize their pleasure? And I, I don't think that all people are going to be what my term that I came up with while we're talking here uh, is comfort maximizers. I think some people just want to maximize comfort. And there's a lot of comfort, a lot of utility to use an economics word and just having the money. Uh, it's not necessarily what the money could turn into. It's more of what it represents. And I think it represents comfort and safety. And so a lot of economists look and say, what's going on with these folks that don't spend the money that they sacrificed for? Well, they're maybe sacrificing more for the utility of this comfort. I've got this ability to feel safe and feel comfortable by holding on uh, to the money. That's that's my thought on it. Well, you, 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 your thoughts are very excellent, and uh, I, I appreciate you, you providing them in this, uh, in this discussion. The, probably one of the problems, though, is that the, the insurance markets are not working the way they are supposed to. You know, buying a, a long-term care insurance policy is very expensive if you do it as an individual. And most employers are not offering group policies. So that uh, actually there's some danger that the that insurance market will actually disappear because it's become so expensive, fewer and fewer people buy those long-term care policies. And so fewer and fewer companies offer them and uh, the only ones that do offer them at very high prices. And, uh, you know, they, these insurance policies also, many of them, you know, they, they reach a limit. So you can actually, it, they don't provide full security because maybe you, you're in the, in the nursing home for five years. And then after that, the money runs out, the insurance policy says, well, you reach your maximum. Uh, or they only pay for a, a fixed amount of dollars, which doesn't really cover the cost of the nursing home. So we have a problem our, in our insurance markets. And that's a big part of what our book is trying to say is that uh, the insurance markets aren't working the way they should. And that's true to some extent for an, uh, annuities policies as well. A lot of an annuity policies aren't really uh, the kind of annuities that you and I were talking about. That's right. they're, they're policies that are set up to allow um, affluent people uh, to save more. And there's nothing wrong with affluent people saving more, but uh, we want to make sure that uh, there are some regular annu uh, annuity policies or payoff annuity policies, as you put it. And similarly, we'd like to see uh, a revival of uh, long-term care insurance. And actually, if we had that, it would take some of the expense off the federal government because at, at the moment, the federal government uh, provides uh, a lot of backstop care in, in Medicaid nursing homes. So, uh, you know, how do you do that? Well, I think it would be worthwhile for the federal government to provide some kind of subsidy uh, for long-term care insurance to make it a bit cheaper. And I think that would be good investment. I think it would, they would get their money back on that. And uh, also, they could encourage employers to offer those long-term care insurance policies and annuities uh, as part of their retirement packages and provide counseling to their workers to say, these are some of the advantages. And as you exactly said it right, uh, these are freedom policies. They're freedom from worry about having to go into a nursing home and the cost of that. They are freedom from 
uh, worry about living too long and running out of money. Uh, and they allow you to enjoy your retirement free of some of those kind of uh, uh, worries. So uh, uh, an important part of the recommendations of our book is to try to revive some of those insurance markets and make them work uh, better. Yeah, excellent. Well, I appreciate you writing the book. Appreciate you uh, nerding out with me on the economics. I love talking <laughs> about this. I think you've expanded a bit my uh, thinking, but also helped me kind of round out and speak what I was maybe having right around my my brain there. So I appreciate you you doing that and coming on the show, Martin. I've got one more question for you. Before that, tell us what's the best way for people to reach out to you or perhaps get the book? Um, you can get the book from Amazon on the book is The Retirement Challenge um, by Martin, Neil Bailey and uh, Benjamin Harris. Uh, so please do buy it. I hope you like it. I hope you send in some um, many starred uh, reviews. That would be great for us and, and great for uh, our sales. But uh, you can uh, reach me at the Brookings Institution. I cannot uh, promise to answer all your questions. We don't give specific investment advice. So we don't tell people, okay, what should I invest in uh, either uh, when they're saving for retirement or after they retire? You know, go to your financial advisor, watch one of Susie Orman's shows or something like that. And there are a number of uh, good people. Make sure that uh, if you get an advisor, make sure you know how they're being paid and they're not being paid excessively, uh, because sometimes advisors can steer you into products which are good for them, not always the best for you. So, uh, yes, but uh, I'm available at the, at the Brookings Institution, and I uh, really appreciate the chance to be on your show uh, and uh, getting to meet you on this uh, interaction. Yeah, you've got it, Martin. And uh, we love education. You're clearly focused on education. And what I love most is that uh, this isn't uh, highfalutin, ivory tower kind of stuff. You, you've really no. broken it down into how people can approach things in their personal lives and then really some common sense ideas that uh, need to come about uh, on the policy side. Uh, what we're going to do, first three people that email me, podcast at kylefp.com, we'll send you out Martin's book. So we'll uh, get that book from Amazon delivered right to you. Email me at podcast Fantastic. at com. Yep, I, I love education and giving away books uh, on our podcast. Uh, everyone else, uh, we'll have links in the uh, the show notes on how to get to uh, get to Martin's book there. All right, final question. Tell us something about yourself that few people know about. And remember, this podcast is rated clean. Well, uh, I grew up in uh, England, and uh, I've been here now since 1968. So I've uh, lost my accent. And when I go back to England, people think I'm an American, which I am. I'm an American, and of course, I've been in the administration. But I grew up in uh, a central part of the country in Birmingham, which is so that makes me in, in British terminology a, a brummy. And uh, so I, I, uh, I'm proud of my British ancestry, but I'm also a very proud American. And uh, uh, thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been great. Thanks for coming on the show, Martin. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you will feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. This was another great episode of the Retirement Revealed podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to automatically get our latest episodes. If you liked our show and want even more, please give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
We would love to hear from you. Please go to retirement-revealed.com to learn more and send us your questions and feedback. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners, Thrivent, or its affiliates. The guests are not affiliated with or endorsed by Thrivent Advisor Network. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal accounting or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have with your investment planning.